Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog talk radio. The phone line will be open after the second half of the show so that you can call in and ask a question or make a comment. Now, most people tour plantations to learn more about life on the plantation in early times. Antoinette Harrell, who has conducted research on peonage and involuntary servitude for the past 12 years, has visited several plantations throughout the Mississippi Delta, where people have lived for generations without leaving. She has interviewed several people who still live on those plantations. So what is life like on these plantations today? Why haven't they left the plantations? And where are these plantations located? I'm so happy to welcome Antoinette Harrell today, tonight, and tomorrow, and whenever you listen to this show, because she's going to talk to us about modern day plantations. So let me give a warm welcome to Antoinette Harrell, to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Antoinette. Good evening, Bernice, and let me just give you a warm-hearted thank you for having me as a guest on your show this afternoon. Well, I am just happy to have you, Antoinette. I have seen your work. I have observed the pictures that you've posted, as well as the movie that you're working on and posted the trailer. So take us back to how did you learn about modern day plantations? Well, Bernice, when I started researching tenants and involuntary servitude, um, looking at documents in the National Archives and the Department of Justice files, reading some of those files and identifying some of the locations that was near my home in Louisiana, I traveled to those places that I read 
in those documents in the FBI files, in the Department of Justice files, as well as the NWACP files. And after reading those documents, I sort of marked out my map and locations. I wanted to go there and just scout around. I really wasn't looking for plantations, but as I got more in-depth into my research, this is how I learned about those plantations. So you mapped them out. So where are they located? Uh, the ones that I have identified is in the Mississippi Delta, which I know that the Mississippi Delta consists of 219 parishes and counties, but the plantations that I have visited is in the state of Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta. Uh, and, and let me just say this along with the first question that you asked. There was documents that indicated that people did not get off those plantations in 1863, nor did they get off those plantations in 1927 with the rising tides of Mississippi flood. And so a lot of the families that remained in those plant, on those plantations remained there for generations and generations. Well, you know, one of the things, Antoinette, and I've shared with you some of these uh, documents right now, the Family Search has launched this big Discover the Freedmen's uh, indexing project. And so I wonder, I mean, as you talk about the people in the plantations, and I've looked at some of the records and I see plantation names, I'm just wondering if those are the same family members, generation after generation, still living on those plantations that we may find in the Freedmen Bureau records? Well, it's highly possible because uh, some of the families, well, especially the families that I'll be talking about tonight, they have been on that plantation for several generations. Some of them have counted five generations. They've never left. Mm -hmm. So it's quite possible that some of those uh, documents and those uh, records in the Freeman Bureau will really talk about some of these families that still remained on the plantation to this day. Wow. So how many did you actually locate? I actually located three of them, mm -hmm. uh, three plantations in different counties. The latest one that I came across was, uh, well, that matter of fact, it's four. It's four. Um, one is called Sterling Plantation, and one is called Buford Plantation. Those mm -hmm. are the latest two that I have uh, come across within the last month. And matter of fact, I was there uh, two weeks ago with students from Valamont College Preparatory School, and that was the first time that I had actually went to that plantation with the students to meet and talk with some of the people that had been on that plantation for as long as they can remember their grandmother. Uh, their, their grandmother's mother was on that plantation, so they had never left. So people are still living and working on these plantations. Now, when, when we talk about living and working, give, give us an idea of what you observed. Okay, most of the people that live there, especially uh, the men work on the farm, and they may be the ones to drive the tractor, to drive the truck, uh, working working on the, the tractors, the different equipment that may be breaking down, or whatever it is that the boss man, as they would call him, uh, tell them to do that day. 
um, and of course, it's still not easy. One of the conversations that I remember the last conversation that we had in the Delta just two weeks ago, this man said to me, he said, there's, a, there's something called a long day and a short day. Mm-hmm. Well, a long day, you would get $7.25 a day. A short day, wintertime, $6.25 a day. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. He said, you think I'm here to play? You think I'm here to just say these things? And I was chosen by this documentary film company called Picture of Change, and they chose four people in four different countries. Well, I was the person they chose in America to document the work that I was doing at Delta. They mm-hmm. got an opportunity to travel to uh, the plantation as well and talk with one person who family had never left the plantation. And it wasn't, you know, it was everything that I thought, everything I read, everything I heard through oral history that had been passed down. And you can see that this man was basically fighting back the tears. You mean the the producer that so you the took there was, was fighting? Or the person? Oh, I understand. Okay. Yeah. Now the you said something. You said something early, and I just want to make sure I understood what you said. You said a long day. It was like seven twenty-five a day, and a short day. 625, not an hour, but a day? A day. And, you know, that wasn't the first time I was told by people in the Delta that they was making $6 a day. So that wasn't new to my ears. It was new to the people that was listening. But I had heard people in Glendora, Mississippi, say young people say they had worked for $6 a day. So tell us now, they're, on, they're working on the plantation. Tell us, the, the, how, what, how is it structured? I mean, what about the housing? And is there a big house? And it may, let, I'll just stop talking and let you tell us what. Yeah, there right. is a big house. And the big house may not be the wooden houses that most of us would see, you know, with the, with the oak trees, the moss hanging down from the, the oak trees. It may be a brick home now. But I remember in Warren County, Mississippi, about five years ago, this man said to me, he said, stop looking for the big house, the white house, the long road, and all the wooden cabins or shacks or shanties or whatever you would call them. Stop looking for those. You have to look now for a different type of plantation. And I said, what would that look like? He said, I'm going to give you directions, and I want you to go and see. He said, there's a brick, there's some brick units down the road from here, doubles. Now, if you was to pass by these brick doubles, you wouldn't think that it is a plantation, but it is a plantation. And so after I got through talking with him and I decided to drive down the road with my colleague and I went on the place and I saw this lady and I had some items in my car and I said, look, I have some things I want to give out. Uh, And someone told me if I could uh, locate the plantation, and she said, this is the plantation here. And so there was always a way that, I, I, you know, a clever way I had to use to get on the plantation because I just didn't 
trust anyone and people, um, you know, what you want, what you're doing here, you know, that kind of thing. So I've always done mission work that really got me on these plantations without raising too much of suspicion as to why I'm there. Well, Antoinette, I mean, you, you're saying that you you shouldn't look for, I guess, the Hollywood version of what a plantation should look like. And so you should look for maybe brick structures and what have you. But what makes a plantation a plantation? The conditions. It's the conditions which the people live and work under. That's what makes a plantation. Uh, of course, the homes are not that, you know, up to date, uh, but it's the conditions in which the people work under. Is the boss man? Is the conditions that govern? You know, the people there, and that's what makes the plantation. And after talking to the people that I talk to, most of them refer to the plantation or the place. They call it the place or this this place here or the plantation. And they still work for, uh, a lot of them still work for these people. And I know that question that many people have in the back of their mind, why can't they just leave? Well, first of all, there's a lot of people can't read and write. They cannot read and write. Uh, They are comfortable with having a roof over their head. They wouldn't know where to go. Um, I don't know if any of them have family outside of the plantation, but they have nowhere to go. And also the boss man will loan them 20 hours if that's what they need. Uh, The second thing of it is I remember when the instructor saw a couple of cars parked at people's houses, and I said, okay, what that's supposed to mean. Now let's think about this in the day of the mule. And if anybody who know have studied sharecropping know just how valuable that mule was and what they had to do to get that mule, well, if you are not making enough money to go and get a loan to buy a car, who's the first person you're going to turn to to buy anything? You're going to turn to the boss man. So when you purchase a car or a truck for 4000 that vehicle may end up being 9000 10000 You're not going to leave. And everything mostly in the Delta is far and in between. It's not like walking out your front door and there's a neighbor across the road in many cases. You know, it's just open land. It's cotton, it's soybeans, it's corn, it's just land, with the land or the cotton meets the sky. That's what I say, you know. It's like the ocean meeting the sky. Well, that's how it is in the Delta. The crops meet the sky. And so most people say, well, why they just couldn't leave? Um, it was Leonard Smith who took the tour with his family to the Mississippi Delta. He said, it's just open space. Where could you go? Now, remember, you know, back in that time, people didn't have vehicles like they have right now. Mm-hmm. So if you was going to try to escape, you was going to try to escape on foot. And hopefully you have somebody that's going to, to try to help you. But who could you trust? I mean, you, you couldn't trust too many people. So you're describing an isolated community of people that are living on land owned by someone else. 
And is everything so contained that there, the stores are on this plantation or the schools are on this plantation? Kind of lay it out for us in acreage and crop and even the relationship that they have, and you call them boss man, with the boss man. Well, yeah, that's what they call them, you know. So mm -hmm. I'm there to learn the terminologies of what people use. Uh, there is schools in the counties, and if any of the children would go to school, they would be bused to school uh, maybe nine, ten miles away, uh, wherever that school would be located. But a lot of these plantations sits in the middle of uh, hundreds, of, hundreds of acres of land. You know, no one is just planting like five acres of land. I'm talking about 100 acres of land large amounts of acres of land, huge amount, you know. Um, when you're traveling in these type of remote locations, 10 miles can seem like a very long drive because there's absolutely nothing there, absolutely nothing. And so the fear that people still have in that was passed down from generation to generation, they owe the boss, they're not going to leave. I mean, it's, it's a strange sort of dependency, mm -hmm. but it is a, it's a dependency. And so it would be to the large companies or the person who owned the property to keep people uneducated so that they would have that cheap labor as needed. Interesting. So what kind of work are the people doing? They are working like some of the women may work in a big house. They're still doing the cooking, the men, handyman around the place, you know, um, different types of work that they do, you know, driving a tractor, driving a truck, running errands, just different types of work that it would take to run a plantation. But a modern-day plantation, you don't see a lot of field hands in the field working, uh, picking the crops like you would have, maybe like during the period of sharecropping or during the uh, period of chattel slavery. Now you see machines and you see people working around uh, the equipment, you see the women in the house, you know, you see those sort of things. And, you know, women who are cook the food and bring it to the big house, you know. These are the type of things that you see. Um, now let me tell you about the conditions of another plantation. Well, this one African-American man and the white uh, person who owned the plantation, it was handed down to him through his father. Mm -hmm. So him and the black man, they're about the same age, about a year apart, but they grew up playing together. And when he inherited the plantation, well, him and this black man, they call themselves brothers. And so he's at the big house all the time. And I remember when I first visited that plantation, he allowed me to come in the big house and go through the Confederate trunk that his family members had and look at all the records. And I saw the date book. I saw the financial records. I saw uh, the names of the people that was on a plantation. And matter of fact, on this particular plantation, they had what they call a holding cell 
where the person, the person who owned a plantation would go to town and he would bail these men out of jail and put them in this holding cell. And they would have to work off uh, that debt and they would be there for a long period of time. And I had an opportunity to go into that place and look in that place. And so, uh, and I was very grateful to the owner of the plantation that he allowed me to just walk freely around the house and look at the records. And there were so many things I learned from the house. For you example, know, most, yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Most people who visit plantations, they'll look at it and hear what the curator uh, has to say. But to go in there and to go and look at a plant, go to a plantation and go inside and look at all the records in the trunk that was kept of how many uh, bales of cotton this person picked, how many pounds, and, you know, how much uh, insurance coverage was on this particular cotton, what he took it to. You know, that was some records that most genealogists would be just happy to find. And I found photographs in this particular uh, house of some of the 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 black people that was there and the people that was on this plantation in their 80s and 90s they was able to give me the story of their grandparents who was on that plantation wow so they obviously because you said generations have lived on the plantation you found that their knowledge of their family history and their family story was much stronger than individuals that are just starting out and looking. Exactly. Exactly. Their genealogy would be something that most of us would just really just want, you know, that would be like living in some part of oh, genealogy heaven, you know, to be able to go back that many generations on one plantation and generations and generations then to be able to look at documents and photographs uh, I saw photographs on this plantation dating back as early as like 1920, 1930. That was the earliest photograph that I saw of black people on this plantation. But the records were so, I mean, they kept very good records. Of course, it was one of those modest plantations, uh, 4,000 acres of land. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, and and going in that trunk, oh my goodness, I was like, I can't believe he's let me scan. He let me scan documents. Oh sure, go ahead, Antoinette. You know, I don't care. You know. Wow. Yeah. Well, well, Antoinette, we have a question coming out of the chat about how many African Americans are on these plantations. Let's say an average per plantation. What are you looking at? It's really hard for me to say because I was, you know, looking at the houses, I saw 10 houses on this one, I saw about 10 houses on another one, and there's about five houses on another plantation, and you never know how many people lived in there, though, you see, Uh, Mm -hmm. because there was doubles, so I don't know how many people lived to that one unit. So it would be mm-hmm. hard to say. And I really didn't go. Uh, I sort of just really embraced that person that was talking to me. So I didn't. I tried not to ask too many questions. I didn't want to raise any suspicions, you know, because after all, you know, the big house is right on the same property. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But I, I paid attention to, you know, people that was walking around or coming in and going out, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, I did see some people, but once again, it's always good to really look at how many units there are. So the units kind of gave you an indication. Now, you mentioned sharecropping. Now, are these people sharecroppers or the relationship is totally different? It's totally different. I mean, once again, what relationship you may have with the boss man may be something totally different than what the next person may have, you know, but it's always something that um, is, is you help me and I help you. That's the kind of relationships they have. And I asked a lot of the people, could they read and write? And most of them couldn't. Well, that that's uh, a, a telltale uh-huh. sign right there with most of them not being able to to read and write. Now we right. have a question. We have a question coming in, and I'm going to take a. It's it's on the line, and then after which we'll take a quick break. So, uh, uh, caller, you're on the line. You're live. You have a question or a comment? Yes. Greetings. I sure do. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. Uh, Mrs. Antoinette, this is so very interesting. I want you to know that. I'd like to know if you have a website where we, uh, the public, can interact with you. And if you do tours or if you have any other type of um, any anything going on, whereas the traveling uh, individual can maybe enjoy some of this with you and just understand really how this is still to be in this day and age. Yeah, my website is www.antoinetteharrell.com. And most of the work that I do that lead people to the plantations would be mission work, like bringing books to the people or socks or something like that. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about books to the children. Uh, children books or things like that. I try not to make a spectacle like people at a zoo or something like that because, after all, it is their homes. And I really do not like to just bring people in to just look at the people and take photographs. But if someone wants to help, uh, there's a, this work has led me to do mission work like you know, bring food, uh, blankets to those. And that's how a lot of people who have taken these tours with me end up taking the tours. I would love to be a part of um, an, a, a group to help. I would love to be a part of that. So how do I, should I just go to your website and yes, leave numbers for you? Phone number, I would like to put my phone number out there, 504 858 Four six five eight. Once again, that's five zero four eight five eight four six five eight. And I uh, I, and I really do embrace help uh, for those that's in the Mississippi Delta that never got off the plantation, so that we can get a better understanding of how these families end up being left on plantations in two thousand fifteen. I look forward to 
you giving me information on how I can be a help to you and those people. So I will be giving you a call. Thank you so much for your patience. Thank you. And this is a great show. Thank you. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And then uh, those of you that want to call in, you can call in with your questions or comments. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Broad Talk Radio and iTunes. Now, you have been listening to Antoinette Harrell discuss modern-day plantations. And Antoinette, we have another caller calling in right now, and that caller is calling in from area code 504. You're live. Do you have a question or a comment? Greetings, greetings. I, uh, uh, Ms. Bernice and uh, uh, Ms. Antoinette, I wanted to ask you, Ms. Antoinette, uh, in New Orleans here for quite some time, I would say before Hurricane Katrina, until now there's been a large influx of young African-American girls from Memphis, but they're not actually all of them from Memphis. They're from the Delta, Mississippi, and they've been coming in prostituting. And I want to know, have you begun to look into the connection between these levels of poverty in these areas and the level of prostitution among young black females as being part of human trafficking? Oh, yes, by all means. Uh, prostitution is a big uh, market there in the Mississippi Delta because it's so poor. And uh, when I tell you poor, I mean really poor, you know. So there's no jobs, there's lack of transportation, so it forces a lot of the girls and women to look at prostitution. So uh, I'm not surprised they're coming in, and I'm not surprised that they're being tricked into uh, New Orleans because of the social media. They're reaching out to people. They want to get out of those conditions. And so sometimes they're being exploited because they want to get out of those conditions. And someone that's wise enough to know that, okay, these women want to leave, they have children, and they trick them into prostitution. So that is one of the things that I noticed that, that was there too with a lot of the young girls. Okay, because of New Orleans, apparently I talked to a police officer, and he says that 
a lot of the arrests they're making are girls who are from the Memphis area, which which yeah. a lot of them, you know, when they leave the Delta, they'll go to live in the nearest big city, which would be Memphis, and then they're coming on the highways and coming down to New Orleans. And I just wanted to yeah. see that, look into that. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, now we have a question, and although uh, you're in the chat room talking to the chatters, I just want the listeners to hear this question. Uh, it's would Afghans uh, quilts be needed in that part of the county at any time of the year? Yes, because in the wintertime, a lot of the houses, the houses uh, are really, you know, they're not weatherized, so a lot of the people there they don't have uh, homes that's insulated. And so I have a lot of elderly people and people that need blankets. So uh, sometimes that's what my mission is in the wintertime is to bring clothes and warm items to those that's in need, you know. So that's part of what, what I do as well. And that came out of that work after finding people on plantations or living in conditions like these, you know, uh, that was left behind. Right. And then there's another question about uh, about the schools and, you know, what about supplies? Are they needed? And what else could benefit the children on these plantations? Um, yeah, school supplies, um, just different things that will help a person in day to day life. Socks. Uh, I remember when I was there a couple of months back and there was this lady said, Look, Antoinette, as long as the socks are clean, they don't even have to match. We just want to be warm, you know. Life is hard in the Mississippi Delta, and I was hoping that uh, after Leonard Smith had taken a trip that he would call in tonight to just talk about what he saw, you know, uh, because a lot of my attention has been given to the Delta for the last five years. And so there's a great need, even food, because the uh, 35 miles, the nearest supermarket can be 35 miles, so they're not really getting a lot of healthy food. That's why they say Mississippi, um, they may have a lot of land, but they don't grow their own food. And so they don't have transportation to get to the supermarket, you know, and so they are without. So there's a lot of times the, those foods like dry goods and perishable items are needed in the Mississippi Delta. Yes. And so now, Antoinette, I want to go back to something that you mentioned to us earlier. And and clearly, I'm, I'm hoping that those who are listening will uh, understand that Antoinette does do a lot of mission work. And she is always looking for people to send, send supplies and what have you. So I hope that you all will follow up with Antoinette and contact her by phone and her website. But Antoinette, you mentioned going into a, uh, the big house, for lack of another word, mm -hmm. and meeting the owner. And the owner giving you access to documents, documents that were basically, sh that shared everything that you wanted to know about a family on that plantation. Uh, how interested are the family members in those documents? Well, a lot of family members, the ones that uh, the older people, because they don't know how to read and write, 
those documents have no interest to them, but that was just one young man. He really wanted to know. Uh, I would give him 49, 50. He really wanted to know. And so he was able to read and write, and he was just a surprise. And I just looked at him with a look on his face because knowing that just decades ago, he would not have ever been able to look in that phone ever. And one of the, the, the man, that the young man who's, who owned the plantation now, his great-grandfather was a judge. And they was Confederates. And so, you know, I have a great deal of respect for him now because the fact that he allowed me to go through those records. And he didn't stand over my shoulder when I went through those records. He, and he have invited me into his home several times. I'm always welcome in their home. Matter of fact, when I go, they don't want me to leave. Mm-hmm. You know? Whatever you're looking for, you know, I can go sit at the, you know, the desk that has that roll desk, that old desk, and just look at the photographs and look at that old money and all those things. And uh, and when he let me go inside of the holding place, that was uh, a moment for me. That was a very emotional moment for me because the documents in the courthouse matched the place that I was looking for. Yes, yes. I I can imagine that that feeling to yeah, have that seen was. those documents. Oh yes, yes. And and the holding what was it like? I mean, as far as the size and the condition of the holding area. It was a dirt floor, brick place, uh, a fireplace in the middle of the building. Um you can see you it was a side for the women and a side for the men. And so I just sit there. I just sit there and just looked at the room and um cold it was because it was in the winter time. It was very cold because number one, like I said, it had a red dirt floor. Um, brick walls, there was nothing nice about the building. And just to hear the lady that was 82 years old, she said to me, I remember all the crying and, and screaming that used to go on in this place. I'll mm. never forget that. Mm-hmm. Wow. She said they were going to get them from the jail in, in town and come there and hold them there and, you know, before they put them in a field. And once again, now, these places are in remote places. And I see that Leonard Smith has joined us, and I hope that he can really call in just to share his experience about traveling to the Delta. Uh, right. How- well, I have him online right now. So, Leonard? Yes. Okay. Hello, You're live. Hello. Hi, Leonard. Hello, Antoinette. How are you? I'm doing fine. Well, tell us about your experience. You had an opportunity to visit a plantation? Well, actually, we were more of a a blues run, I guess you would call it. We were going to the Delta to um, do the blues trail to take photographs. And some of the places that we went, it's kind of like off the beaten path, and it, it just amazed me that, first of all, the, the GPS system said they didn't know where we were trying to reach, but 
uh, we can put you kind of like in the area. And so when you get off to the off the main highway and off to the, the deep path, it, it's just to see. I can only imagine what what it's like at night because it was pitch dark by the time we left Mississippi, and it was just amazing that you know all of these little places that are you know not off the main highway. You, you you're on the main highway, then all of a sudden you're on the dirt road, and you know Mississippi actually has some nice highways. And we went all the way up to Memphis. So we went from New Orleans to Memphis. And but those little towns that's in between like Clarksville, which are, is one of the bigger towns and um but the little towns that are in between that in Memphis just um, just amazing to see what you you know, I mean you just ride for miles and miles of of different crops and and, and you know, we saw everything from soybeans to uh, rice. I was I was shocked that you know, and I've been in Mississippi many a times, and I've been to Memphis many a times, but really did, never realized that they actually grow uh, rice and have crawfish, have a lot of catfish farms, um, and then of course there's corn, and of course cotton is is which is not in season right now, but it just amazed me to see all the different crops and 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 miles and miles that you can just go without seeing any houses or anything, then all of a sudden you're, you're in a, I guess, like a a town, which would be Clarksville or one of the bigger towns in Cleveland. But it's it's an uh, experience that everyone really should see that, you know, there's another part of the world that's right there in Mississippi. Right. And did you at all interact with the people on the plantation or you were just driving through? No, we were more of a driving tour kind of thing. We didn't really stop off off the beaten path. Um, that is something that I want to do um, sometime in the, probably in the fall, um, right before when, when the, the cotton crops are up, because I, I, I've always liked photographing cotton for, for some reason, because it's just a beautiful picture, but um, I know I will be making a, another trip that way. Um, but it was just, to me, it was just amazing to see all of the, and, and we saw a lot of the sharecropper croppers, houses, I guess they would be, um, you know, some of them are, are kind of off the main highway, but, you know, I had a big lens that I had on my camera and I could see houses in the distance. And, you know, I could tell that they were of the variety of like the, um, I want to see the Canadian houses that are in this area. And so it's a different, and it'd be a little road kind of thing. And then when you hit some of the other parts of the, to the outskirts of the little towns and stuff, you do see houses that, you know, was probably there uh, for people who worked in the fields because they were wood frame, um, small houses like shotgun style houses if you're from New Orleans. But it was um, just a different different look, just a different feel altogether. Um, and I noticed even, and, and, and a couple of us actually had allergy issues, uh, I guess going from one crop area to another crop because, I mean, they, like we might go another 30, 40 miles up the road uh, they had rice, and then all of a sudden there's soybeans and, you know, whatever, and, and people with allergies would probably have a, a hard time even to adjusting to that because of the fact that yeah, I guess they recycle the, the sorrel. I know if you do rice, normally you have craw you do crawfish. Of course you do. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. I, I just want to say that a lot of people have respiratory problems. There's no doubt about it. Uh, a lot of children that I um, uh, talk to uh, when, I, when I'm there, you know, their nose are constantly running. I've, you know, 
there's a lot of medical issues uh, because the helicopters are flying with the with the dust in the crops, you know. So it's a different life. And I don't just get to see it from, like, you know, a photographer's standpoint I, because I'm in there working it. I get to see things, and it disturbs me a lot to see that in this day and time in America, people are still living like that. Mm-hmm. You know, now, that's... And you, yeah, you mentioned you see they have uh, medical-type issues. What type of access do they have to medical care? Well, gr- uh, good question. Um, the doctors, some some of these small little towns, like the one Leonard was just talking about, they may have a doctor come once a month, may. But because the nearest uh, town may be 45 miles away, it's not like if you have a doctor's appointment, you can always make it because you don't have transportation. Um, if someone needs an ambulance, it can take the ambulance anywhere between 25 minutes to get there, depending on where they're coming from. A lot of people have died along the way just waiting for the ambulance. Mm-hmm. So there's some issues there, you know, a lot of issues that um, uh, haven't yet been addressed. And I know a lot of these towns that do have, that is incorporated, have an infrastructure. Uh, sometimes the people that are elected to be the elected official may not be. They're living in poverty conditions themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's so hard because it's so isolated. That's another issue. It's a very, very isolated. You know, very isolated. In between Clarksdale, I don't know where Leonard was located at, but you may have a little community in between that. And some of these towns are. are, are incorporated towns, but that the infrastructures are very, very uh, remote. Mm-hmm. Well, now, Antoinette, one of the, the questions, and you mentioned something about the children, and I know that at one point you were requesting books for the children, but do they have a library on the premise, or do they have to leave to go to a library? Bernice, a lot of children probably have not seen a library outside of school. And that made me think about when I was a child growing up in Amiot, Louisiana, the very first time that I had seen a library outside of school was in New Orleans, Louisiana, 1975. Well, uh, from my understanding, in one county, there's only two libraries in the entire county. And a lot of the youth there, they don't have the access to a library outside of school. So that why, that's why it was important to help try to get this community resource center started. But again, that's not without challenges because people who have earned their master's degrees and feel like they have arrived because of certain status quo, they may drag their feet. And I just have to say, the truth is the truth. You know, when someone has theirs, they're not really concerned about the next person. And I see that all the time. I just, and it breaks my heart because a lot of the children are so talented, so gifted. They're the ones without the resources. Given the resources, we're talking about brilliant people. We're talking about brilliant children. You know, they don't have access to a library or a community center. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, um, there's a community center that just opened a partners in development in Glendora just started a community center because we put so much on the YouTube. And so we're hoping that we can get this 
Community Center opened in Webb, we um, we um, transported over 7,000 books there last June, and they're sitting in a warehouse, and I'm very disappointed with the elected officials there that they are not doing enough, enough to get these books out of the warehouse and give it to the children. To say the least, if you look, if you can't get your building together, do not have these books sitting there, you know, being fed to the silverfish, and the children need the books. This is, mm-hmm. a, this is some very good educational material. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Now, I know that you do, and I put your trailer on um, on Facebook so that people could see what you are trying to share with individuals about modern day plantations. So tell us uh, when we can see the, the movie and what should we be looking for, what you hope that we gain by looking at this movie about modern day plantations. Well, I, and I just want to thank once again Leonard for uh, putting the trailer together in partnership and with me to try to get this movie out to really educate people on life on a modern-day plantation. What could we expect? Why is the documents in Washington, D.C. so important to help us to understand that everybody did not get their freedom in 1863? I just was reading just recently that they're about, they're about to do a remake of Roots. You know, and I'm hoping that the film that Lynn and I would want to uh, feature will help people understand, okay, beyond roots, let's look at, let's bring it to the 60s, let's bring it to the 50s, let's bring it to the 70s for that matter. And matter of fact, we can bring up the 2015 to show that people are still living on live activations. And so I'm hoping that this featured film will be able to raise awareness of how just how many people are left on those plantations. Now, most of us are looking for those records that would take us to show where our family members was, what plantation, who owned them. But these families here have a voice. We need to be that voice. We need to give them a voice. What was it like? You never left a plantation. You know, mm-hmm. these type of people that we'll be interviewing. Tell us about your life as on, on this plantation. What was life like for you? If some of them will talk, but we do have some that's willing to talk. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly will be interesting to to hear what they have to say about life on the plantation, and also because you're talking generations, talk about what they know about what was passed down to them, and yeah. and and kind of their aspirations because what happens when they move on or if they move on, uh, they will have others behind them. And so, uh, you know, I want to just thank you for coming on just to share with us information about modern day plantations, something that many of us probably have not thought about, but they do exist, as you have said, in Mississippi Delta and other places. So please continue to share with us, Antoinette, what you uh, discover, uh, information that you feel we need to know, and also how we can be of assistance to the people that are living on the plantations. Well, thank you, Bernice. I want to thank you for having me as a guest, and I certainly want to thank Leonard uh, for sharing his experience as he traveled to Mississippi Delta. And that made me think about Dr. Ron, the late Dr. Ryan Walters, 
uh, who traveled to, who left Boston, uh, I think it was uh, Baltimore, and came down to uh, the Mississippi Delta uh, with me. And he got an opportunity to see what that was like. So I just want to say that there's a, there's people that was left behind, but we also have an obligation to help those people in need, especially by giving the children, um, you know, material, educational material that can help them to get out of the conditions, the impoverished conditions that they live under now. Okay. Well, I just want to say thank you so much, Antoinette. And I want everyone to remember your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. And you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And I look forward to all of you joining me next Thursday. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Antoinette.